0: I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. I've, um, this is a little bit different to, for me this morning. Most of the time the guys around here are after me for titles. And I never know what to call anything. A lot of times I'll change a title but preach the same message I have been preaching. And, and so titles are worthless as far as I'm concerned. Most of the time what happens is that the Lord will either give me a thought or put something specific on my heart, a, a, a biblical thought or principle or whatever. Or maybe just a scripture. And, uh, and from there, I, I've always marveled at people that practice their sermons. That must be a great thing to do. I, I have no idea. Because I, I, um, uh, I usually, the way that the Lord deals with me, and He, he works with people in different ways, there's not one right way or one wrong way. But, um, Anyway, the, the way the Lord deals with me is He gives me a, a thought or, or points me in a direction, whether it's a scripture or whatever it is. And, uh, and I'm as surprised as anybody else to hear what happens from there. And, um, uh, but this morning, without a thought or a direction, I've got titles. For the next two weeks, I've got titles. So the guys around here are real excited. Because I've given them titles for two weeks in a row. Um, what I'm going to talk to you about for the next couple of weeks is the new covenant. And I want to talk to you specifically this morning about the blood of Jesus. Now, you need to be aware that I'm breaking the number one rule of church growth. I'm serious. You think I'm making a joke, but I'm being, being just as serious as I can be. The number one rule of church growth is do not talk about the blood of Jesus. Don't we'll talk about blood because it's a gross thing. It sounds barbaric. People don't want to hear about the blood of Jesus. Well, folks, without the blood of Jesus, we got nothing. I'm sorry that that, you know, rankles church growth people or, or whatever, but the blood of Jesus is the most important thing we can know about. So I want to start in, uh, in Matthew chapter 26. And, uh, uh, here's the story of the Last Supper. Jesus, um, well, without getting into the context of it, you know a lot of what happened at the Last Supper just before Jesus was betrayed and went to the cross. Let's start reading in verse 26. It says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave them th- gave thanks and said, uh, gave it unto them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament. Now, the word testament and the word covenant are one and the same. So you could translate it either way. It's not an incorrect translation, but a a, a more... Um, consistent translation because the Old Testament doesn't talk about, doesn't use the word testament, it uses the word covenant. As far as the Jews are concerned, they know about covenants. Testament is just another way of saying covenant. So he's saying this blood or this cup is, is uh, the new covenant in my blood. Drink all of it. Now, the word covenant means to cut that's all it means. It means to cut. But the picture behind that is that there is a cut made in the flesh of an individual, and that cut causes blood to be released or blood to be shed. So the, the, as far as the Jewish mindset is concerned, uh, relative to the language as well as to the history and their custom, when Jesus talks about a new covenant, everybody understands that he's talking about some kind of blood, a bloodletting. Everything about the sacrifices was about the letting or the shedding of blood now i was uh, i was tempted to uh, to look at this uh, this story from uh, from all of the gospel accounts and i'm not going to do that but um uh but i do want to give you a little bit of background on the on the gospels and the difference in the gospels and 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 why that's significant matthew was an eyewitness to this event he was one of the 12 he was the the tax collector he was the accountant now as an accountant he's very precise in the things that he that he uh, records for us by the holy ghost He's very um, uh, precise in the lineage of Jesus, and rightly so, because that means a lot to the Jews. That meant a lot to the Jews. To you and me, it might be interesting as far as history is concerned or, or research, but it's not that big a deal for us. But for the Jews, it was just the other way around. They couldn't have cared less as far as history or, or historical or research or anything like that. It meant if he's not of the right lineage, he can't be who he said he was. And so Matthew gives us a, a, a gospel to the Jews. And as an accountant, you know how accountants are. They are very precise. They're very detailed. They have to balance things out to the penny. That's the way that Matthew writes. Now, Mark is uh, probably John Mark, which was Paul's... Um, I'm sorry, which was Barnabas's nephew. You remember Barnabas and Paul started off as, uh, as co-laborers together, and then they had a dispute over John Mark because on the first missionary journey, he turned tail and ran, and things got too tough for him. And so Paul didn't want anything else to do with him for a while. And Barnabas wanted to to help him and mentor him and do all that kind of stuff, and so Paul and Barnabas split up, which probably never was the plan and purpose of God. God put them together, and and they should have worked things out uh, it's not a matter of who's, uh, who's in the right or who's in the wrong. They should have found some way to make it work because uh, the plan of God for both of them was hindered, at least from God's best and God's original intention. So Mark gives us a, a an account, a, a gospel account, that's kind of an overview. He's not a precise guy. He's, uh, he's less... Um, Focused on the details and the minute things and stuff like that. So we have to assume that his gospel, since he was a Gentile, that his gospel was more for the Gentiles than anything else. And his is kind of of an overview. Now, Luke was one of Paul's company. He was somebody that uh, that traveled in ministry with Paul. He wrote the book of Acts, as well as this gospel that uh, bears his name. Luke seems to, uh, Luke was the third of the gospel accounts, uh, according to, to church history, that uh, that was written. And Luke was a physician. Now physicians are precise, but they're precise in different ways than accountants are. And so he gives us more details when it comes to the, the healings and the miracles and the stuff like that, that that Jesus did than even Matthew does. Matthew just just you know covers details about details, but Luke gives us more information about the things that he was more naturally drawn to, which were the healings and the miracles. Luke gives us an account, gives accounts and recordings of miracles that none of the other gospel writers tell us about. He's got a special section in there, and uh, and and he wasn't an eyewitness to these things that happened. So how did he know? Well, because of his association with Paul and the, and the ministry work that he did with Paul, it's assumed that he had opportunity to interview and to talk with all of the uh, a variety of people. He certainly knew Peter. He certainly knew John. He certainly knew a certain other of the twelve that were still alive, and so he had an opportunity to hear from and kind of compile a gospel account from many different people that were there, and then the Holy Spirit inspired him to write to us. John was the last gospel. John was an eyewitness to the things that took place in Jesus' ministry. He was one of Jesus' inner circle, one of the three that were closest to him. And as a result, John uh, doesn't even cover the Last Supper other than the um, uh, the fact that, uh, that Jesus gave the, the piece of bread to Judas, and then Judas left the room. John seems to fill in the blanks after the other ones were written. Instead of telling some of the same things that the other gospel accounts give us record of, John seems to fill in the blanks and tell us a lot more things. Like, for example, John's story of the Last Supper was not about Jesus saying anything about the communion, what we know of as the communion. It wasn't him saying anything like that, but rather him telling what it was going to be like after he was gone what it was going to be like in the church age, what the Holy Ghost would do. He gives us a lot of information that the others didn't have, first of all, because he was an eyewitness, and secondly, because he seems to be trying to fill in the blanks or, or elaborate on what the other gospel accounts have already identified. So you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke that all tell us the same story, and that's the reason why I didn't go to all three, They tell us the same story about the Last Supper where Jesus said, this cup is the New Testament or the New Covenant in my blood. Now, why do I say all those things to you? Because the one thing that's outstanding, Luke is the only one that tells us about any conversations that took place in the Last Supper. And it says that the conversation that took place was that, um, well, John says something about it too, but the conversation primarily that took place was they were all wondering, who is it that's going to betray you? Because Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. So that becomes the topic of conversation. Who is it going to be? Who, who's going to do it? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it him? That kind of stuff. Finally, John tells us how it took place that he answered specifically and privately to Judas when Judas says, uh, "Well, I actually, here in uh, uh, in Matthew chapter 26, back up a couple of verses and let me show you something. It says." Um, Verse 20, Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then they were exceedingly sorrowful, and began every one of them, that means all twelve of them, every one of them began to say, Lord, is it I? Now notice they're saying, Lord. They're calling him Lord. And he answered and said, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goes, goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better for him or good for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master. Notice everybody else is calling him Lord, which means you are the one that rules my life. I do whatever you tell me to do. I follow your commands. But Judas calls him Master, which means teacher. Doesn't have the same relationship with it. Judas says, Master is that I And He said, Jesus answered him and says, Thou hast said, literally, even as you say. Well, John tells us that that happened privately. That wasn't something that everybody saw, everybody heard. John tells us that that happened privately. And it was a whispered conversation, I guess, between John and uh, between Judas and Jesus. So that when Jesus gave him the piece of bread, then the, he left the room and everybody else thought, well, he's gone to give to the poor. He was the treasurer. And I guess that was uh, that's an astounding statement if you think about it. I mean, how many people think when you leave a room that you've gone to give to the poor? That's not the first thing you think about somebody, is it? Unless that's their typical operation. Unless they give to the poor in such a degree that whenever Judas, who's the treasurer, leaves the room after whispering with Jesus, they assume he's gone to give to the poor. That must be a major component of his job, wouldn't you think? So this is the only real conversation that takes place. Now, forgive me for belaboring the point, but I'm really trying to make some, bring something home to you. And that is this. When Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, why is nobody questioning it? Why is there no conversation? Why is there no question for Peter saying, whoa, whoa, whoa new covenant? Why? What do we need a new covenant for? Even up to this point, some of these guys are looking for him to take control of the Roman government. Deliver Jews from the, uh, for, deliver Israel from the, the rule of the Romans. People are asking him that. That was Matthew's number one thing. Matthew asked Jesus early on and several times through, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? One of Jesus' disciples was named Simon the Zealot. He was a terrorist. Now, I know that we don't like to say it in that terms, but that's exactly what he was. He was a guerrilla fighter against the Romans. And Jesus turned him into his disciple. Well, you can can well understand that his initial concern would have been political. Jesus, are you going to change the political landscape? And Jesus said, that's not what I'm about. That's not where my kingdom is. So my question is this, why are the disciples not questioning this new covenant in his blood? Turn back with me or turn over with me to John chapter 6. Here's the reason that I'm asking the question. John chapter 6. Here's the story of Jesus walking on the water. First of all, he uh, multiplies the loaves and the fishes, feeds the 5,000. Then after that, he walks on the water, sends the disciples to the other side of the sea of, the, of Galilee. And in the middle of the night, they're in trouble out there. And Jesus comes walking onto them on the water. They wind up on the other side of the sea the next day. Well, everybody's looking for Jesus, knowing full well that Jesus sent his disciples away, but he stayed on this side of the sea. So everybody's looking on this side of the sea for him, saying, where is he? Where is he? And then word comes that he's on the other side. And they can't figure out, well, how did you get to the other side? So then they take ships and they sail to the other side. They come to Capernaum. Now, when they get there, the Bible says, um, uh, well, verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there on the other side, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side in Capernaum of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? How did you get here? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. In other words, without answering his question, without answering the question of how did you get here, he could have said, Oh, I walked on the water. You should have seen it. Man, it was so cool. <laughs> to say a word about it. Instead, he says, You're looking for me for the wrong reason." I know you want to be around me, but you want to be around me for the wrong reason. You want to be around me, not even because I'm doing miracles. You want to be around me because you ate the the food that I provided yesterday. Labor not for the meat which perish. But for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him has the God the Father sealed. Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Now, folks, religious people always ask what sounds like the right stuff. And Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he sent. In other words, quit trying to work your way into my good grace and just believe in me. Folks, that's good advice today. Quit trying to make God like you and believe in what Jesus said that He was and who He is and what He said to do. Then they said therefore unto Him, What sign showest us then that thou, that we may see and believe in Thee? What doest thou, what dost thou work? See, everybody wants to see some physical evidence. Now you would think, in the beginning of this that they're on the right track hey we've where's jesus he was here yesterday now he's on the other side let's go to the other side well that seems like a good thing to do doesn't it and jesus says you're here for the wrong reason now they're asking for a sign well how can we know What dost thou work? Verse 31 says, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, why are they talking about bread? Because Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes yesterday. So they're talking about manna. They're saying, well, wait a minute. You multiplied loaves and fishes yesterday. You're going to show us a sign. How about the sign of Moses? He gave them bread from manna, uh, bread from heaven, called manna. How about that? Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, quit worrying about Moses. The bread I'm talking about is from heaven, is what God gives you, not what Moses gave you. Quit trying to go back and relive the law or experiences in the law. By the way, it's interesting that people start, uh, people in Jesus' day were looking at manna like, wow, manna was such a great thing. But manna in the day that it was given became something that the people hated. They said, man, can't we have something else? Well, we've got manna everywhere. I mean, there are only so many manna stew recipes you can come up with. So he said, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, he, which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now, they're still thinking naturally. They're thinking, oh, you mean you can give us bread that we can eat one time and never have to eat, bake any bread again? Jesus said unto him, I am that bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you, but I said unto you, that you also have seen me and believe not. Folks, believing is a choice. You're not convinced Because of something you see that all of a sudden you believe whether or not you want to believing is always a choice and the people that are always looking for signs and I'm going to say this like it's somebody else instead of you but it might be you too because we do this in other things we might believe in Jesus as Savior but we're looking for signs to believe in for healing. talking to somebody the other day or got an email from somebody the other day said pastor Mike I believe in healing but I just believe that there might be hindrances to me receiving well the Bible says you can have what you say this guy just said there are hindrances now what he means I understand where he's coming from been there myself no no criticism meant here or intended but what he's saying is I'm not seeing the results as fast as I want to see them. so what's wrong what does that mean that means he's looking for a sign same as this guy, these guys. See, folks, anything you have to have physical evidence for to prove that the Bible is true means you're not really believing in the Bible. That is the greatest stumbling block of faith. And people don't even know what they're doing. Because faith, by and large, hasn't been taught. We try to overcome that. But that's exactly how it works. Anything you've got to have evidence for, anything you have to have some kind of physical evidence or physical circumstance to tell you that the Bible is true means you're not believing in the Bible. It means you're believing in what you see. And faith is the evidence of things not seen. Worst thing you can have is evidence. Outside of the Bible, because if you have evidence, for example, some people believe in healing and all of a sudden they feel better the next day and they think, oh, praise God, it's working. Why? Because you feel better. What are you going to do two days from now when you feel worse? Well, those same people say, well, I guess it stopped working. Well, the Bible didn't change from the first time that you spoke the word to when you felt better or when you felt worse. The Bible's the same either way. Smith Wigglesworth used to say this. He said, when I, uh, how did he say it? He said, when I have physical evidence for what I'm believing for, I have a tendency to think that I'm strong in faith, but that's when I'm the weakest. He said, I'm the strongest in faith when there is absolutely nothing to support what the Bible says except the Bible. That's strong faith. And see, that's that's exactly opposite the way that mankind usually thinks. So these guys are looking for a sign. They need Jesus to prove something. Folks, he just multiplied loaves and fishes to feed five thousand. That's like Moses talking to God in the burning bush saying, Lord, give me a sign. And that's exactly what he did. God speaking to him out of a burning bush saying, go say to Pharaoh. Let my people go. And Moses said, well, I'm going to need a sign for that. You're talking to a bush that's on fire and not being burned up. And you need a sign. And that's literally, folks, that's the way it works. There's never enough signs for anybody. Sooner or later, you're going to have to choose to believe just because you choose. Okay, where did I leave off? Verse 36, I said unto you that, uh, that you also have seen me and believe not. I could read this whole chapter, and I, I really would prefer to do that, but I, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to do it. Skip down to verse 41. Then the Jews murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Let me ask you a question. Did he tell the truth or not? Well, then what are they murmuring about? I want you to see the pattern that happens here, and it's going to happen throughout the whole chapter. The pattern is people get uncomfortable with what he says, so they don't like it. And they don't stop to think, they don't stop to judge, is what he said true? If it's true, then if I'm upset about it, shouldn't they be looking at me instead of what he's saying? So they murmured because he said he came down from heaven. And then they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? In other words, you can't come down from heaven. We know your daddy. Jesus answered and said, murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the father which has seen me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, he's saying the only way you're going to come to me is if you yield to what the Holy Ghost is telling you, the conviction of God on the inside is telling you. Let me put that in simpler terms. You can't come to God if you're offended. You can't accept the things of God if you're offended. Now, a lot of people think that their offense is righteous anger or justified in some righteous way. And it never is. Yeah, but what if somebody did wrong? You still don't have a right to be offended. The question is, is what he said true? If what he said is true, there's never a reason or a right to be offended. He goes on in verse 47. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, who that believeth on me have everlasting life. I am that bread of life. And he talks about man in the wilderness. Your father ate the man in the wilderness, but I'm the bread that comes from heaven. The living bread that came down from heaven. Verse 52, then the Jews therefore strove among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I guess I better back up and read verse 51 because it's, it's kind of the crux of the whole thing. Jesus said in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, meaning him, he shall live forever. And the bread which I will give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, folks, please understand cannibalism is very, very, very much frowned upon in Judaism. So when Jesus is talking about giving him his flesh to eat, they're thinking, law of Moses, you got to be kidding. There is no way that's right. Well, Jesus isn't talking specifically about taking a chunk off of his arm. He's talking about offering himself, his body, and his blood for mankind. And you have to be a partaker of that body and that blood of Jesus if you're going to receive the life that he came to give us. But did they stop and say, wait, wait, hold on, wait a minute, what do you mean? Nobody's asking for clarification. Nobody's saying, wait a minute, Jesus, look. We know that you always tell us the truth, but this is something that's really hard for us to understand. What are you talking about? Not a word. They just start murmuring among themselves. They just get upset because they didn't like what he said. Then Jesus said unto them, verse 53, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, why doesn't Jesus, please, please, please stick with me here for a minute. Why doesn't Jesus do what we think would be walking in love? And stop and say, look, I know you guys are having a hard time with this, so let me explain. He doesn't. He hammers down. He said, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. (laughs) That's what he's doing. Matthew was there. This is eyewitness account. Verse 54, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Uh, he goes on and speaks more about that. Verse 59, these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear this? Now, who can hear it literally means, how in the world are we supposed to accept this? In other words, many of his disciples are saying, Jesus just went over the, the deep end here. Everybody knows this can't be right. Now, folks, this is a guy they've seen do miracles. This is a guy that they've seen raise. uh, Well, at this point, John uh, Lazarus hadn't been raised from the dead. But most of the people here have seen Jesus heal the cripples, open blind eyes, bring sight to the blind and, and hearing to the deaf, cleanse lepers. I mean, there's hardly anything. They've seen him walk on water. They just saw him walk on water. He's multiplied the loaves and the fishes. What more can this guy do to prove who he is? But his disciples are saying, I don't know about this. I don't know who can possibly accept this. When Jesus knew it in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? Notice he did not say, don't be offended at this. Notice he didn't wink to the twelve and say, I'll explain later. He said, does this offend you? Which means offense is just as much a choice as believing in Jesus. Nobody's forced to be offended in anything. You choose to be. Jesus then answered and said, and if you see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before. In other words, he's saying... And if my words are proven by me returning to heaven, what you going to do then? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. Notice verse 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Now, everybody looks the same. Everybody looks like they're part of the crowd. Oh, yes. Thank you, Jesus. For all the good things that you're doing. We want to be right here with you. We want to see the power of God. We want to get the tingles and the, the goosebumps when good stuff happens. But Jesus knows not everybody in the crowd is equal. There are some people that look like they believe in him and they don't. And there's at least one, Judas, that's going to betray him. Jesus, in other words, wasn't fooled by the faces of the crowd. Just because somebody smiles at you doesn't mean they're on your side. And Jesus wasn't taken in by it. So he goes further and says in verse 65, Therefore I said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given of him unto him of my father. In other words, you're going to have to act spiritually if you're going to follow Jesus. Now this is the problem. Their problem is they don't want to act spiritually. They want to judge this based on their own thinking and understanding. Think about how stupid that is. People that don't know God are going to judge Jesus by what they think they know. Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. That means left him and left him for good. Now, how many is many? What are we talking about? We're talking most of the crowd? We're talking 70% of the crowd? We talking 90% of the crowd? I see the implication that it's a lot of people. I see the implication that there's more gone than there are left. That more are going to leave than are going to stay. You judge for yourself. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, now these are the close guys. These are the guys that he's teaching how to do the same things that he does. These are the guys that he's delivered authority over sickness and disease and to cast out devils and stuff like that. These are the guys that have been working hand in hand with him. Jesus said, guys, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you mad. And, and, And I'm really going to need your help to get all these people back. Is that what he did? Jesus said, are you going away too? Now, folks, here's here's what's so amazing, and, and so few people seem to get this. You know as well as I do, and I'm not looking at anybody. I'm not pointing at anybody. I'm, I'm, uh, I hope I'm not talking about your past or whatever the case is. But if I am, just smile and act like I'm talking about the other guy. Okay? So many times people leave because they get upset about something they don't like. How many times do people leave churches because something happens they don't like? And most of the time, it's an irrelevant thing. Sometimes it can be because the pastor got a new car. Sometimes it can be because they don't like the songs that we started singing. They don't like the new program in church or something like that. It could be something absolutely irrelevant. But then other times, they put on a spiritual position or spiritual cloak and they say well pastor so-and-so was wrong when he said this but more often than not it's because they're uncomfortable about the way something was said now if it's a matter of doctrine give the guy a chance to 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 see if he really said what he meant to say there have been times where i've had people come to me and say pastor mike you said this i said i did not And I've had several people say, yeah, you did. You said exactly that. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what I meant to say and what I believe. So what do I do? I've got to fix that. I come back next time and say, now, folks, last time we were here, I said such. And I didn't mean to say that. I meant to say just exactly the opposite. So my tongue just got messed up. Forgive me. Please, you know, stick with me. Because this is what the Bible says. I've had to do that on occasion. Well, once. (laughs) So sometimes... We, it's just a matter of human nature. We say something that we didn't intend to say. Well, some people will not even give you the benefit of the doubt on that. They hear something and, man, that's it. They're gone. They get offended because of something they heard and they don't even check it out. But again, more often than not, the situation is not because somebody misspeaks. It's because somebody says what's true in a way that makes somebody else uncomfortable. And the thought is, and you can get real religious about this, the thought is, Well, if Pastor Mike was in the Spirit, and if he was walking in love, he wouldn't have said it in an offensive way. Folks, may I direct you to John chapter (laughs) 6? By that thought, Jesus was neither guided by the Spirit, nor was he walking in love, because he said it in a way that was offensive and didn't back up. Sometimes, and this is the tough part, sometimes the Spirit of God is trying to bring offense in an area, a bring offense to you, or uh, that's not a good way to say it. He's bringing information, bringing the truth to you in a way that you have a choice to be offended or not. Because the fact that you might choose to be offended is an area that you need to change. And how are you going to change something, that you might, an area that you might be offended in, without being confronted with it? if the spirit of god doesn't confront our areas of offense how are we ever going to change and so people because they get uncomfortable because they get offended then they leave they take off say oh they pastor mike get him he doesn't know god anymore used to teach the word but something happened <laughs> you see i had to be on, i had to be right some of the time for while they were coming You can't exactly tell your friends, I left that church because they never preached the word. Well, why were you there for five years? Oh, yeah. Well, he used to preach the word. You see what I'm saying? The Holy Ghost is really trying to stop us from being offended. And number one way for that to happen is to confront us in our areas of offense. But that's the place where people decide, I don't like it there anymore. Things have changed. Used to be good. But I I don't know, I just, something's changed. Something's different there. Notice Jesus turns to the disciples, doesn't say a word about, listen, I'm not trying to hurt anybody feeling here. Doesn't say a word about that. Doesn't say anything about trying to get the crowd back. Jesus couldn't care less about the crowd. Folks, I can't tell you how this has set me free. (laughs) I saw this years and years and years ago when people were leaving because they were offended. Now, I've said this over and over again, and forgive me for repeating it, but it's true. I don't try to offend people. It just comes naturally to me. (laughs) Now, that's the joke. The reality is sometimes I'm directed by the Spirit of God to do it. I'm not real comfortable with it because sometimes I know what I'm doing. Sometimes I don't, but sometimes I know what I'm doing. And that's not a real comfortable place for me because I want everybody to get along. I don't want people to be mad at me. I mean, there's enough things that people are going to be upset with me about. I don't need to go looking for more, you know. But notice what Jesus said. Jesus just simply asked the disciples, you're going to be offended too. You're going to go away also. Then Simon Peter answered, I love Peter's answer, says, Lord, where are we going to go? Not exactly a ringing endorsement so far. (laughs) Not exactly. No, Lord, we would never leave you. It's like, well, you know, we gave up that fishing business. and uh, Where where would we go? We're kind of dependent on you now to live, so. Lord, where will we go? Now he turns it around and he says, you have the words of eternal life. In other words, the reason he's saying where are we going to go is not, well, we don't have any place better. He's saying we realize even though we not, may not be any any less inclined to be offended at this as anybody that just left, we know that what you tell us is true. Now, folks, this is the way you stop offenses in your life. The question is not, does this make me feel comfortable? The question is, is what I heard true? If what I heard is true, then I need to change my comfort zone. If what I heard is true, then I need to change what makes me feel comfortable or uncomfortable. Because I ought to always be comfortable with the truth, even if it comes out in a little different way. Because the truth is the only thing that counts. And God's word is truth. So Peter says, where are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure. I love what he says. And we believe and are sure. That thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. If anybody else in that crowd had believed the same thing, they wouldn't have left. The ones that did leave, had they believed and were sure that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, they wouldn't have left no matter what he said. And that's the thing that keeps Peter and the 12 in place. Now, here's my question. Remember where we started over the Last Supper? This cup is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood. What changed from John chapter 6 where everybody is upset about eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood, to Matthew chapter 26 at the Last Supper where Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, drink all of it, and nobody says a word. What changed? Peter's endorsement in John chapter 6 is not, oh, we know what you're saying is true. He's saying, well, we don't understand it any better than anybody else, but we believe in you. Why? What's changed? Look with me to Matthew chapter uh, 16. Matthew chapter 16. Let's talk about the blood covenant for just a few moments. Can I give you an overview? first animal sacrifice we see taking place comes after Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says God made skins for them. Well, where did he get the skins? God didn't say, let there be skins. Where did he get the skins? He sacrificed an animal. How do we know? Because the very next thing the Bible tells us, the next chapter of Genesis, tells us about Cain and Abel offering a sacrifice. How did they learn? God must have shown Adam and Eve, here's the price that has to be paid every time Sin is committed. You've sinned on behalf of mankind. There has to be a sacrifice. That's where they got the skins. God shows them. He teaches them. A blood sacrifice has to be offered. And the result is now they're clothed. But the more important thing is there was a temporary covering for their sins. That must be the case because the Bible doesn't tell us that Cain and Abel were instructed of God about sacrifices. They must have learned it from their parents who must have learned it from God. And you remember the sacrifice Cain and Abel made. Abel brings the sacrifice of blood. Cain brings the crops that he grows himself. He tries to do it his own way. And that's not accepted by God. Well, what does that mean? That means blood has to be spilled on behalf of sin. Noah's flood or the flood in Noah's day. The Bible tells us that, that God instructs Noah to build an ark. He goes uh, through the, the, um, uh, all the everything involved in, in preparing the place. God brings the animals to them. It says the clean animals of the earth, he brought seven pairs or 14 animals. That's all that was left of any clean species. Uh, one pair for unclean animals. The Bible tells us after the flood, after the, the ark finally settles, it says Noah leaves, builds an altar unto God and offers one animal of every clean or one uh, sacrifice of every clean animal. That means one fourteenth of every species was offered. As a burnt offering. Why? Because it's a new start. The flood has cleansed the earth, but now the sacrifice is made on behalf of sins. Can you imagine what would happen with the animal rights people if something like that happened today? Fourteen animals left and you're going to kill one of each species. Well, wait a minute. The animal rights people got killed in the flood. Never mind. Forget that. (laughs) The point is, A blood sacrifice is really important to God. Very important to God. It goes through to Abraham. Abraham enters into a blood covenant. Now, Abraham starts off with obedience to promises. In Genesis chapter 12, it tells us about how God speaks to Abraham and says, follow me, go where I tell you to go, and I'll bless you. That's all he's got. He's got a promise. If you obey me, then I will do certain things for you. That's all he's got. He doesn't have a covenant. Genesis chapter 15 is when he enters into a covenant. God talks to him about his seed being like the stars of the sky. And Abraham says, how will I know that I'll inherit the land? What does God do? He commands him to, to make sacrifice. He offers a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice Abraham's not the one that enters into the sacrifice. He just kills the animals. He separates the animals uh, side by side. Then God causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. And in his deep sleep, his his stupor, whatever this, I don't know what, to, what to, to relate to this thing. But he sees certain things. So he's not completely out of it. But hes hes it's almost like he's drugged so that he doesn't mess things up. And as he watches what takes place, he sees two things walking back and forth between these the the split animals and the, the blood that's shed on the ground, which is the terms of a covenant. That's the way you offered uh, entered into covenant in Old Testament days. Now, folks, you need to understand, a covenant is not just a Bible ritual. Every culture on the face of the earth has some blood covenant ritual as a part of their, their history. Everybody. What does that tell us? That tells us this idea came from God, not just from somebody else. Because there's nobody that traveled to all the different cultures to teach somebody about about blood covenants and offering sacrifices. It's got to be something that originated from God. So Abraham enters into a covenant with God. It sees He sees two beings walk back and forth. One represents God and one represents Jesus. Or one was God and one was Jesus. Now, why is God making a covenant with Jesus? Because Jesus represents Abraham. See, folks, you need to understand the covenant, the old covenant and the covenant that's still in place today. The Bible says we have the blessings of Abraham because we're redeemed by Christ. The blessings that belong to us were not because Abraham obeyed God. They were because Jesus represented Abraham. And if we're in Christ, Abraham's promises are ours. See, it goes beyond just a human being keeping the commandments. It goes beyond just a human being obeying what God said to do. It's God making a covenant with Jesus, his son, on behalf of Abraham and the children that he would produce. Not spiritual, I mean, not uh, natural Israel, but spiritual Israel. Does that make sense? The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, or Galatians chapter 2, I'm sorry, that God preached the gospel. Unto Abraham, he told him about Jesus. He told him what Jesus would do. Well, Abraham's covenant is modified or, or ratified, codified, maybe a better way to say it, through the covenant, that uh, through the instruction that God gives to Moses. And everything about the old covenant, everything about the law was two things, the commandment and the sacrifice. That made up the old covenant as they knew in the law of Moses. The first part was the commandment, 630 commandments that nobody could keep. The purpose for the commandments was not for you to keep the commandments. The purpose of the commandments from God's standpoint was to show you you couldn't keep the commandments. The second thing was the sacrifice. And man, there were sacrifices all over the place. Sacrifices were being made right and left. We think of the Day of Atonement. We think of the the Passover. And those were the two big ones. But there was blood being shed in every aspect. That's not the only sacrifice that was made. But the majority of the sacrifices of the old covenant were blood sacrifices for the purpose of showing people that your lives revolved around making sacrifice. What was it intended to teach? That you couldn't do it on your own. You can't keep the commandments, and you need a redeemer. You need a sacrifice. Both of those pointed to Jesus. Now, in in Matthew chapter 16, did you find that yet? Well, if you haven't found it yet, just give up. Or look on with your neighbor. Gave you plenty of time. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Let's start reading in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some say Elias, that means Elijah. And others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, folks, uh, you need to understand something. Judaism does not believe in reincarnation. Reincarnation is not part of the Judaic philosophies. So why are people thinking he's somebody from the past? It's easier for them to believe something that's contrary to their core beliefs and their core principles and the law of Moses that they say they follow than it is to believe that he's the one that was promised. It's amazing to me. People will come up with all kinds of theories. They'll come up with all kinds of ideas about how things work and what's going to happen in the future and all this kind of stuff, instead of believing what the Bible says simply is the truth. It's amazing. So Jesus asked them and says, but who do you say that I am? And folks, that is the issue for mankind. Who do you say that I am? Doesn't matter who other people say or what other people say about Jesus. Who do you say he is? Simon Peter answered and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Christ means Messiah. You're the promised one. Now, what was the the Christ promised to do? Be a savior. Be a sacrifice. Abraham understood this. When God instructed Abraham to, uh, uh, do any of you see this Bible series? The part about Abraham offering Isaac, I wanted to blow up my TV. (laughs) It made God look like a sadist and Abraham look like a lunatic. Oh, I couldn't stand that. I had to turn it off. Now, there are some parts of it that got better. I'm, I'm not criticizing. Well, yeah, I guess I am. I'm glad I don't have to answer for it. But that part just absolutely infuriated me. There were so many good things you could have done with that. Because Abraham believed in something that had never happened before. He believed that God either would not let him go through with offering Isaac as a sacrifice, or two, that God would raise him from the dead if necessary. Nobody had ever been raised from the dead at that point in time. What did Abraham know about people being raised from the dead? He was willing to believe in the impossible, something that had never occurred before, if that's what was necessary for God to keep his promise. That's the kind of faith of Abraham that we're supposed to follow. So many times people take the, the position that, well, you know, it's just impossible. it's just How could God make this happen? Are you kidding? How could God make it happen? The faith that we're supposed to follow and use as an example is Abraham's faith, who said, well, God promised Abraham that Isaac would be the source of the seed that he's going to give me. So that means Isaac has to live and have children. So if God has to raise this guy from the dead, he'll do it. You reason things like that for the Bible to work for you instead of why the Bible can't work for you, and you'll see miraculous results in your life. One of the things that happens in this story with Abraham offering Isaac is that Abraham on the way to the mountain, three days journey, on the way up the mountain, well, even before he leaves the the rest of the company down at the foot of the mountain, he says, Isaac and I are going to the top of the mountain, and we will return unto you after the sacrifice. Well, if you think you're going to kill your son up there, how is there going to be a return? He may say, I'll come back. But he said, we'll return. Both Isaac and I will return unto you. Sounds like faith. Then he gets on his way up the mountain and Isaac asks a question. He says, hey, dad, got the wood, got the fire, got all the stuff we need. We don't have a sacrifice. And Abraham answers Isaac. Whether he knows he's speaking prophetically or not, I don't know. I think he does, because the Bible says that God has already preached the gospel unto Abraham. So I think he knows at least a little bit of what he's saying. But he says this specifically. He said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. He does not say God will provide a sacrifice for himself. He says God will provide himself a sacrifice. And then when Abraham goes through? Raises the knife to take his son's life, knowing full well if he's got to be raised from the dead, he will. Now, don't get me wrong. What in the world could be going through a man's mind at that point in time? You've got to be struggling with this thing from every angle. I'm not saying he didn't have any doubts. I'm not saying there weren't thoughts of doubt that came against him. I'm not saying he wasn't afraid. I'm not saying any of that stuff. But he was still willing to do what God told him to do no matter what because he believed that God would make it right no matter what. So he raises the knife, the angel stops him, and said, and then God speaks and says, Now I know, since you would not withhold your son from me, but you were willing to obey no matter what, now I will not withhold mine from you. Now that's my paraphrase, but that's the point that God's trying to make. That was the, the whole basis for the limits or the, the lack of limits, I guess a better way to say it, the lack of limits for this covenant that God and Abraham had. God's really sending Abraham to the top of the mountain with Isaac to make the sacrifice, saying, how far does our relationship go with you, Abraham? And Abraham proves it goes all the way. So God says, OK. You didn't withhold your son from me. I won't withhold mine from you and your descendants. So here's what this covenant is. This covenant was all about blood. It was all about making uh, um, uh, an atonement for sin. Atonement is Old Testament word. Redemption is New Testament word. It's, the atonement means a covering over for sin. Thank God our sins aren't covered over. Ours are wiped away. Matthew chapter 16. Simon Peter answers and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 16. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, folks, you remember what he talked in, in John chapter 6 about? He said, You can't come to me except the Father draw you. In other words, you're going to have to listen to what God's saying on the inside in order to accept me. Because there's always going to be reasons on the outside not to. There's always going to be thoughts, there's always going to be circumstances, there's always going to be questions, there's always going to be something in every aspect of the Word of God, whether it's related to Jesus specifically in salvation or whether it's related to any of the promises or the blessings that He obtained for us. There's always going to be something standing in the way. So it comes down to a choice. You're going to have to choose to accept something from the inside as truth instead of just the thoughts and the doubts and the circumstances outside. That's why there's a choice involved. In the same way, he said, here, Peter, you know that I'm the Christ because you've accepted what my father showed you inside. Folks, that's how you know. That's how you know the Bible's true. You know the Bible's true because you decide. God said it. God can't lie. Therefore, the Bible's true. Now, when you start there, does that mean everything just rolls over for you in life? Well, dear God, no. That's when you start really running into opposition. That's when the circumstances really start raising up against you to say, well, the word can't be true because look at this. How can you possibly be healed when you're sick? Now, that takes a while to get your head around, doesn't it? How can you possibly be healed by the stripes of Jesus if your body is aching and your body is racked with sickness and pain? How is that possibly true? Well, circumstantially, it can be. That means you've got to accept something more real than circumstance. Well, what's more real than circumstance? God's word. How is the God? How is God's word more real than the circumstance? Because God's word, when acted on, will change the circumstance. But the circumstance can never change God's word. So he said, "Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, Peter. You've been operating from your inside, from what God has told you on the inside, from what my Father has revealed in the on the inside of you." Flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock, the rock of the knowledge of who Jesus is, not Peter. Thank God we're not built on Peter. We're built on Peter. We built on Peter when he was in or when he was out. Now, the rock he's talking about is the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon this rock, I will build my church. He didn't say, I might build the church. He didn't say, here's my best chance to build the church. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Folks, I would submit to you that the church is only ever going to be as strong as our confidence that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, for a lot of people, that just means he went to the cross and died for our sins. Okay, well, he did that. But if we're going to accept who Jesus said that he was... And what the Bible says about him, that means a lot more than just the forgiveness of sins. It means redemption from spiritual death, from poverty and from sickness. It means all the blessings of God that he attained for us. It means a restoration to a place of authority and a place being created into a person of righteousness. And if the church is not strong in those areas, it'll never be strong. Which is the reason the church is in such a mess as it's in. The church struggles with, well, I don't feel righteous. Who cares? He didn't say upon this rock, I will build my church and you will feel righteous. Wouldn't it be nice if he had said some of that stuff? Behold, I give unto you authority over the devil and you'll always feel strong. That would have been cool. That's not what he said. That's not where authority comes from. It doesn't come from the feeling of being strong. Righteousness doesn't come from the feeling of being worthy. It comes from the truth of God's word. No matter how you feel. Thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One translation says the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. I like that. Because so many people have the idea that hell is advancing and the church is retreating. But the picture Jesus paints is the church is retreating and hell doesn't have a chance. Did I say that right? No. See, I'd see. See what happens sometimes. Most of the time I catch it. The picture Jesus paints is the church is advancing and hell can't hold out. Okay, that's the second time. Verse 19, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom. Folks, the church has the keys of the kingdom of heaven. They may not be using them. They may not even know where the keys are anymore. They may have lost them in the junk drawer. But the church has the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, without talking about binding and loosing, you can certainly see he's talking about authority. Whatever you think binding and loosening means, we can all agree that he's talking about the church having authority, right? No question about that. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Notice verse 21. Here's, here's what I, the whole reason I wanted to come over here. Verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show. The word show means to clearly teach. From that time forth Jesus began to clearly teach unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and raised again the third day. Now, folks, if this were not the case, Jesus would have absolutely no right to upbraid the disciples after he was raised from the dead, get on them and and, and you know reprimand them for not believing in his resurrection. Why should that? Before I understood this years ago, <laughs> I thought Jesus, you weren't being fair. The Bible says Jesus was raised from the dead and he upbraided his disciples for not believing in him. Seriously? You're upset with them because they didn't believe that you'd be raised from the third day, raised up again on the third day, raised from the dead? You're holding that against them? Are you kidding? Well, I'm glad I wasn't part of that group because I wouldn't believe it either. Then I saw this. Then I saw that the reason that Jesus reprimanded them and upbraided them because they didn't believe is because from from my... From Matthew chapter 16 forward, he's clearly teaching them, not everybody else, but he's clearly teaching them privately, here's how it's going to be when I go to Jerusalem. I'm going to have to suffer a lot of things. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be raised again the third day. Jesus expects these guys to spend those three days checking their watch. To spend these three days excited because now we're here. Here's the new day. Here's the new covenant. Certainly they accepted part of it. And that's the reason why in the in the Last Supper, nobody is arguing with him when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Why? Because he's been clearly teaching them for weeks. Here's how it's going to be. Here's how it's going to be. Bible tells us that the, the week between uh, Palm Sunday and Easter was a very momentous time. Because Jesus is doing a lot of stuff in there. Jesus comes in triumphantly on Palm Sunday. People are screaming Hosanna to fulfill the Old Testament scripture. I think it's uh, I think it's Matthew's account that says that it would be fulfilled. And it combines three or four different scriptures about Jesus being the king. It was necessary for the people to accept Jesus as their king in order for him to be their sacrifice. That's what Palm Sunday was all about. Luke's account says that the, the Pharisees got upset when people are singing Hosanna to the king. The Pharisees tell Jesus and his disciples, you need to make these people be quiet. That's when Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If they held their peace, the rocks themselves would cry out. Now, that's interesting because rocks represent Jerusalem, the city, not the people. It's necessary for Jerusalem, certainly the people, but Jerusalem to accept Jesus as the king who has come to deliver. Without that, Jesus couldn't have been sacrificed. That was the significance of Palm Sunday. The people had to accept Jesus as their king. Now, folks, we think of things differently today than how they used to work. For example, in David's time, you remember the story of David and Bathsheba? You know why David got in trouble with Bathsheba? Now, I mean, This is a real question. Of course, you know why he got in trouble with Bathsheba. But what I'm asking is, do you know why the Bible says that he got in trouble with Bathsheba? Because it says at the time that kings go out to make war, David stayed home and saw her from the balcony. If he had been where he was supposed to be, he never would have saw her, never would have seen her bathing, never would have gotten into the trouble. The whole reason that she's outside taking the bath is because she thinks that the king, whose house is higher than hers, is gone. Because it's the time when kings go to make war. Kings used to be their own champions or used to be the champions of the people. The story of David and Goliath. Saul was the one as the king of Israel that should have gone out to be the champion of Israel. That's how kings were developed in those days. They were the military champions. That's why when David goes out and kills Goliath, all of a sudden everybody starts looking at David and saying, David's slain his, Saul's slain his thousands and David's slain his 10,000. Because now he becomes the champion. So when Jesus comes in, Pronounced as the king, he's being pronounced as the champion of the people. In other words, it's the people saying we accept him as our champion. Our king, our deliverer. Then the Bible tells us about the things that took place during the week. First thing it says is that Jesus went to the temple and threw out the money changers. He cleansed the temple. Why? Why? Because that's what a champion does to put things back in right spiritual order. Tells us about the healings that took place. Jesus did as many or more healings in that last week than any other time that we, have, we have record of. At least we have more recorded events of healings in that last week. He even healed in the temple when he threw the money changers out. Healed the sick. It tells us that he did a lot of the significant things. The story of Jesus cursing the fig tree in Mark chapter 11 happened in that last week between Palm Sunday and Easter. Then it gets to the end of the week, the last supper. And it tells us about the things that took place while they were eating together. And then it tells us about Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Folks, there were several important places that Jesus spilled his blood. One was the Garden of Gethsemane. He spilled his blood, submitting himself to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. There are certain places that in following his example, you're going to suffer. One is to submit your will to God's plan. Then he's betrayed. After the Garden of Gethsemane, he's betrayed. He's taken before the high priest first and foremost. Why? Because the sacrifice had to be examined by the priest and found to be without spot or blemish. So the high priest takes Jesus. For the people take him to Jesus, or take him to the high priest, and the high priest has this whole thing set up. He's been working with Judas to betray him. He's got this whole thing set up. They've got false witnesses, but the false witnesses can't even get their stories right. They get tripped up on their own lies. And as a result, nobody can bring accusation against Jesus. Nobody can say there's something that he's done wrong until Jesus. So one of the false witnesses says, well, I heard Jesus say he'd tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Of course, Jesus is talking about his death and his burial and his resurrection. And then Jesus questioned about it. Jesus said, yeah, that's what I said. And then the high priest says he's blaspheming. We don't need any more witnesses. He's blaspheming. Well, is is telling the truth blasphemy? So first, the people accepting him as their king. Secondly, the high priest examines him and can't find anything worthy of death in him. But they send him to Pilate. Then Pilate examines him. Jesus keeps his mouth shut before Pilate. Pilate says, I don't find anything worthy of death in this man. And the Jews start screaming. And these weren't the people. This were the, the religious leaders, the ones. The crowd was probably stacked by the Jews and the Pharisees. They start screaming, He's got to be killed. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So what does Pilate do? Pilate says, well, I'm not planning to, cru- to crucify or kill this guy. There's nothing he's done that's worthy of death, but I'll have him beaten just to satisfy you. So that's where he takes the stripes upon his back and he bleeds. Now, the stripes upon his back, his back are not what we know of, like in, in cowboy pictures where somebody's horse whipped or something like that. These were not marks on his back. The flesh was ripped off of his black. his back. Excuse me. The flesh was ripped off of his back. Now, why? Was that because that's what Pilate intended? No, Pilate did not intend that. Pilate's just trying to do something so that they can let this guy go. He still thinks Jesus wants to be free. Natural assumption. So he's just trying to give him some kind of little punishment where he can say he did something, but the Roman soldiers just really take off on Jesus. Rip the flesh off of his back. And when I say the flesh, I'm talking about the meat, the muscles off of his back with these scourges and the whips and things that they're using. The Bible says by the stripes of Jesus, literally the mark of the blow upon Jesus, you were healed. Goes back to Pilate. Pilate still wants to let him go. Washes his hands, says this man's blood is not on our hands. There's I won't turn to the scripture. There's a scripture that the Bible tells us about. uh, When when Pilate washes his hands in water. It says, my hands are clean. The people, again, these are the Pharisees and their crowd, the mob that they set up. The people say, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Do they have any idea what they're saying? No, no clue. They're saying, we'll take responsibility for his death. Now, who are they? They're the religious leaders. They're the ones that are responsible for examining the sacrifice on behalf of Israel. Now, folks, Jesus is fulfilling everything about the old covenant. He's the Passover Lamb who was shed for us, and the blood on the doorpost causes the death, the judgment of death, to pass over us. But Jesus is also the uh, uh, the sacrificial Lamb, the Day of Atonement Lamb. So He's dying for the sins of the people. And in both cases, blood is necessary to protect the people. So when they say His blood be upon us and our children, they're not saying we, the natural uh, nation of Israel, take responsibility for His death. They're saying we, the children of Abraham, will accept his blood upon us. And, folks, that's what you do when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Then he's taken to the cross. They put the crown of thorns on his head. He's taken to the cross. In both places, blood is shed. Now, folks, stop and think about this. Let me I'm out of time, so let me quit here. A lot more we could say, but consider this. The reason it was important in the Old Testament for the high priest to examine the sacrifice is because if there was any blemish, any spot, any impurity in the lamb, it didn't qualify as a worthy sacrifice. Jesus met that qualification. The reason that the, that the Romans had to carry it out is so that Jesus didn't just die for the Jews, but so that he died for all of mankind. The Romans represented the Gentile world. So Jesus is dying at the will of the Jews, and he's dying at the will of the Gentiles. Why is that significant? so that the sacrifice could be for all of mankind. John said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, not the sin of the Jews, the sin of the world. Jesus shed blood in Pilate's court. Specifically, get this, specifically, God planned from the beginning that there would have to be a punishment paid for physical sickness. And that would be the price that Jesus paid. That's what happened in Pilate's court. That didn't happen on the cross, that happened in Pilate's court. What was it about the blood of Jesus that was significant? Well, remember, Jesus was born of a virgin. That means instead of a male sperm coming into contact with a female egg to create the bloodstream, as well as or the blood system, the circulatory system, as well as everything else that's developed in a, in a newborn baby. That means he's got God's DNA. Now, I don't know what that is. And I don't pretend to know it. I'm not saying that there was a specific gene, God gene or something. Who in the world would know? But I do know this. I know that the source of that which joined together in Eve, uh, not, uh, what's her name? Mary, in Mary to create Jesus, to create the fetus. That became the baby. Those are two of the same things as far as I'm concerned. I don't want anybody to say, well, fetus versus baby. Jesus. That's what I mean. That which created Jesus in conception had a spiritual source, not a natural source. First time that's ever happened in, in humanity. Adam and Eve were created as adults. Adults. There was the first time, for the first time ever, there was a God particle, a God element that joined together with a human element to create a human being. Everything that Jesus' blood touches is made pure. Naturally and spiritually. Everything that the blood of Jesus touches was made pure. That means if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, You are saved by his blood. That means you are made righteous, whether you ever feel righteous here on this earth. I'm convinced we'll we'll feel righteous when we get to heaven. To whatever degree you feel, I, I don't know how that works either. But no matter what you feel, the blood of Jesus purifies everything that it comes in contact with. Everything that it comes in contact with. When Jesus said to the disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he's saying, I'm cutting something new. There's going to be a new spill of blood to provide a new kind of life. And that's the life you have if you've made Jesus your Lord. It's amazing to me how churches shy away from the blood of Jesus because that blood is everything. That blood is everything. Without the blood of Jesus, we have nothing more than the Jews had under the law of Moses. Without the blood of Jesus, there is no righteousness. There is no new birth. There is no right standing with God. There is no place for us in heaven. The blood of Jesus is everything. Absolutely everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. Oh, Father, that we would see and know. The preciousness of that blood. That unique blood. That righteous blood. That holy blood. That contained both God and man. Father, whatever DNA Jesus had of you. We now have of you. I don't know if that works that way physically or not, Father. But we certainly know it works that way spiritually. Thank you, Father, for the blood of Jesus. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody looking around for just a moment, please. If you're here this morning and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, you may have been in church all your lives, but going to church doesn't make you right with God. If you're here and would say, Pastor Mike, I want to know that that blood of Jesus has purified me. I want to come into the family of God once and for all. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to accept the shedding of his blood for me for all of eternity. I'm talking about being born again. I'm talking about being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed if you're here and we say, I want to make sure that I make heaven and miss hell by the blood of Jesus. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand right where you are. By raising your hand, you're asking us to pray for you, and we will. Anyone, anywhere? Yes, sir. Thank you. Are there others? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Pray for me, Pastor Mike. I want to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. I want to accept His righteous blood as the payment for my sins. Praise God. All right. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. No one looking around, please. I saw three hands go up. I want to ask those of you that raised your hands and just you to open your eyes and look up here at me for just a moment. Everybody else have their eyes closed? Their heads still bowed? But I want to talk to you for just a moment. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I believe you're serious with God. I'm going to ask you to do something. And that is this. I'm going to ask you to go to a prayer room. I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to pray for you just like I said that I would. I want to pray the prayer that will bring you into the family of God. There's a fellow over here to my right. He's got his hand raised over there. He's going to show you where that prayer room is. Would you take a moment, gather your stuff, your belongings, whatever you brought with you. Would you take a moment and make your way over to where he is. I'll meet you there in just a few moments. We'll just dismiss the crowd here in a little bit. We'll get right to you. Thank you, Father, for the precious blood of Jesus. The precious blood of Jesus. That blood that makes us new. That blood that makes us whole. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. What a wonderful thing to be washed in the blood of Jesus. I know as a kid I'd hear that song. Washed in the blood of Jesus. And I'd think that sounds so strange. But literally what it means is purified by his blood. Purified by the shedding of his blood. Amen. Let's all stand in the congregation please. I want you to help me and pray for these people that have just gone to the prayer room. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for these that have gone. We thank you for their heart, their willingness to give their lives to you. I thank you, Father, that even as Jesus said, whosoever cometh to him, he will in no wise or for no reason turn them away. So I thank you, Father, for bringing them salvation today in the name of Jesus. I thank you that from this day forward, they'll never be the same. I thank You that they'll enter into this new life and that they'll grow by leaps and bounds into the knowledge of what belongs to them. I thank You, Father, for Your deliverance and Your power at work in their lives to set them free from things that the enemy has bound them with. I thank You, Father, in Jesus' precious name that they will truly know that You are their Father and they are Your children. In Jesus' name. Everybody that agrees with that, say Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us for prayer school at 5 and healing school at 6 if you can. And we'll see you then.